Hi, thanks for tuning into the second episode of Can You See It? Our guest for this episode is Dr. Nirupama Kulkarni. Here is Ms. Manali Pawar, a professor of economics at St. Xavier's College, Mumbai, to introduce our guest for this podcast. Dr. Nirupama Kulkarni is the research director at the Center for Advanced Financial Research and Learning CAFRAL, promoted by the RBI. She is an applied economist with a PhD in finance and real estate from the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley. Her research interests include banking, corporate finance, household finance, and real estate. She is particularly interested in how government intervention influences banks, borrowers, and household decisions. She has written many papers which have been published in renowned journals such as the Journal of Financial Economics and the World Economy. We are very glad to have her as a guest on our podcast. Good afternoon, ma'am. Welcome to the Art Niti. Um, so the first question that we have for you here today is that since the theme, uh, since the theme of Art Niti this year is forces, and you have increasingly researched on how government regulations have a forbearance in the banking sector, could you briefly explain what effects these political and regulatory forces have on the performance and the profitability of the banking sector? Sure. Firstly, I. Thanks to the team for having me here. Uh, I'm very excited to be here and you know be talking to the senior students. And uh, let me make a disclaimer before I that uh, these views are my own and do not reflect the views of Capital or any other organization. Um, so let me just start by answering your question. Um, so when you think about the regulatory or, or uh, you know political economy forces, what I'm thinking about are uh, things like uh, government regulation. Um, all political economy of banking regulation that can affect uh, the incentives of market participants. So when I'm saying market participants, I mean the incentives of firms, the incentives of households, and just in general, uh, you know, whoever the regulation applies to. Uh, so it's, I think it's a little bit, uh, you know, you can get the gist of what I'm trying to say if I talk about two specific papers. So let me start with one example. And this is a theme that you'll see recurring even in this crisis. So uh, most of my papers look at the past crisis, the past uh, uh, global financial crisis. And you'll see a lot of those themes occur even you know, in the current COVID times. So one of these papers uh, looks at the uh, flight of deposits, uh, the panic uh, which induced uh, depositors to flee from private to public sector banks. And these uh, public sector banks and the state-owned banks, because they were government-guaranteed, government saw that the depositors sort of start depositing um, at their banks. And now that they were flush with deposits, they started lending it out. And if you, when we looked at where these funds uh, sort of were lent out to, we found out that they were being lent out to the politically important sectors, and these loans eventually turned into non-performing assets. So this brings out the first thing that is the political economy uh, in the banking sector. Uh, you also, I also see this when I looked at uh, the forbearance schemes that were implemented during the same region, the uh, same uh, sorry, same period. And there again, what we found was that uh, 
because these forbearance schemes allowed the banks to provision less for their uh, restructured assets or assets which were essentially going bad, uh, they ended up making, um, they ended up inducing the weekly capitalized banks to sort of lend to distressed borrowers. And it basically sowed the seeds for the next crisis. And uh, what both of these papers sort of highlight is both regulation as well as the political economy of backroom regulation, how that can sort of distort the uh, uh, banking system's profitability and even the incentives to lend um, properly. As per the recent quarterly report by the Department of Economic Affairs, the union government's borrowing has touched the highest ever mark of 100 trillion Indian rupees. And states also have been forced to borrow more, also given that they will not be compensated for the GST shortfall. Given the current scenario, what do you think will be the effect of this on the private companies in the view of the crowding out effect? Yes, this is a very interesting question. Both. Uh both because I've looked at this prior to this crisis, and I think the way we think about this during the crisis is also a little bit different. So let me first talk about how we used to think about this prior to the crisis and why this crisis we might want to think about it a little differently. So when we speak about this, so going back to you know pre-crisis, pre-COVID period, uh, what we what economists usually worry about is that when the government borrows more then maybe this might crowd out uh, private investment and particularly in, my, in, the, in the case that I study, it might crowd out private debt. And uh, you know, it's a little bit important to think about why do governments borrow. So uh, if you look at the top uh, to, at G20 countries, you'll see that most of them have fiscal deficits. That is, their uh, revenues exceed their spending and, um, and hence they need to borrow. And what borrowing allows the governments to do is basically they can borrow against the future cash flows and then they can use that borrowing to uh, spend either on you know capital expenditure or, or other things. And so how this, uh, uh, where this money gets spent, that is what is important. So if you look at, um, um, you know, one component of spending is capital expenditure. That is, uh, governments can spend on uh, things such as public goods, so education, healthcare, infrastructure. So all of this kind of uh, uh, investment is actually thought to crowd in private investment because, and it sort of has these multiplier effects. And we think of this as good spending. And now on the flip side, uh, what we used to think of as uh, bad spending was basically revenue expenditure. That is, if most of these, uh, or most of this borrowing went to um, things such as subsidies. Um, or welfare schemes, and so the and you know I'm uh, I'm just saying bad expenditure very loosely because these are actually important schemes. They help uh, you know maybe marginalized uh, families, uh, poor income households, and so they might be very important. And uh, but what uh, what ends up happening is that they help um, households and even firms weather temporary shocks, but uh, they might not lead to long term growth. And so. Um, you might want to, and they also don't have these multiplier effects. And so we think that this might, kind of spending might crowd out investment. 
Um, and uh, you know, you see this, you see the sort of, uh, and so when you look at the data, and people have done this in many contexts, they've looked at this in the US, they've looked at this in Japan, and uh, my paper, uh, in a corporate paper, we looked at this in the context of India, and we, uh, and you know, strikingly, the, the correlation is the same. That is, when government debt increases, uh, corporate debt de uh, decreases. And uh, usually this happens through many channels. It might be because when government debt, government starts borrowing more, especially for borrowing more from the markets, um, banks end up, uh, you end up stuffing banks' balance sheets with government debt. Uh, another way that crowding out can occur is because governments go and borrow in the bond markets. And because uh, corporates also borrow from the same markets, the government borrowing ends up crowding out uh, the uh, corporate bonds. And usually you see that this happens for the most, the highest rated uh, firms because, you know, the portfolio investors basically think of these as substitutes, a government bonds versus the highest rated the corporate bonds. Now, this is how we should think of this. And this is why we used to worry a little bit about the government debt crowding out um, private uh, debt. But when you think about the current uh, COVID crisis, I think it's a little bit important to realize that this is a very sort of unique crisis. Uh, so in the so when you think about you know usual crisis, you think about uh, firms sort of seeing uh, something like a 10% decline in revenues. But here we have like very massive fall in revenue, almost sometimes even 60-70% fall in revenue. And most of the time, it's because because of the COVID crisis and because of the measures related to COVID crisis, firms have shut down. So the revenue stream has shut down. But there's nothing to say that, you know, once the pandemic is past us, that these firms won't be viable. And so we should think of this as a, a temporary pause on the economy, as opposed to how we usually think of the usual financial crisis, where we think about, you know, insolvent firms versus illiquid firms and so on. And so if we think of this as a temporary pause, the one thing we worry a little bit about in this crisis is that maybe private sector investment is stalled or might be stalled because the private sector you know is looking at a very uncertain period and so here we might actually want the government to spend more um, so when we think about the current crisis and especially when it has taken a toll on human lives we might even you know want to spend do both capital expenditure which is necessary for long-term growth but we also might want to do uh, you know spend on this sort of revenue expenditure because uh, it, it, it basically helps families, helps households survive the current pandemic. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much answered. Thank you, ma'am. So the next question that we have is, uh, so you wrote a paper called Unearthing Zombies that talks about how to detect zombie lending in the Indian banking system. So can you if, uh, explain briefly what exactly zombie lending is and how does it plague our banking system? So yeah, the zombie lending, yeah, when we think about you know what is zombie lending, the way academics think about it, or like just in very pure layman's terms, it's about firms which receive um, credit, and this credit basically helps them survive. And uh, most of the time, these are unviable firms receiving credit at the, uh, rates or at terms which are subsidized, even relative to the most uh, you know the highest rated firms in the economy. And uh, so what we worry about when uh, there is uh, zombie lending, you know, this is sometimes called evergreening of loans or these extended pretend loans, is that the reason banks are sort of complicit in extending these loans is because they, want, they don't want to recognize 
zombie loans as bad loans on their books. And uh, what ends up happening is that credit, which should actually be directed elsewhere, uh, gets sort of uh, allocated to these bad, unviable firms. So when you look at the economy as a whole, you worry that uh, uh, basically credit is going to your most unviable firms and other more productive firms are being um, being deprived of much needed credit. Um, so, you know, the argument that usually people make to, to have these, this kind of evergreening of loans is that uh, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it is that these firms are facing some kind of idiosyncratic temporary shock. And uh, this, um, uh, this sort of extending this credit to them will actually help them tide over this temporary shock. And maybe later on they will recover and do well. And the bankers sort of have the special information and that is what we, that is what we see as zombie lending, but maybe the bankers are totally justified in extending these words. And the thing to think about there is again that when we direct credit to these zombie firms, we're actually keeping it away from other more productive firms. So this, and you know, not only does credit get reallocated, but even other resources such as capital and uh, labor get reallocated to unproductive firms. So just, uh, you know, putting this, um, putting this down even further. So where does the reallocation happen? One is at the bank level. That is, um, banks have uh, extend more credit to unviable firms, so there is less to give to the more productive firms. And second, at the industry level, that is, these unviable firms sort of uh, take away all the resources such as capital and labor, and so there is less. There are fewer resources left for more productive firms. And you also see this sort of uh, economists also sort of say um, term this as um, creative destruction, wherein even when you don't have this sort of healthy uh, death of unviable firms and the birth of new firms. So instead, the process of uh, creative destruction gets stalled and then um, that depresses uh, real economic activity of the more uh, productive firms. So just a follow-up question on what you describe about zombie lending. So how do you think zombie lending differs uh, in India as compared to other countries? Um, so, you know, the, at least in the academic literature, and uh, you know, the short answer is that it exists everywhere. Um, and the academic literature itself has, uh, if you look at uh, people who studied this in the context of Japan in the 90s, and um, and then you also saw this uh, in the academic literature, you've seen a little bit of focus on zombie lending due to the European crisis. And uh, more recently, even before the COVID crisis, people have started worrying about uh, this, uh, increase in zombie firms over the recent And uh, in the Indian context, I would say that uh, this has always been a problem. So in my own work, I've looked at uh, uh, the period before, from around 96 onwards. And, I, and you know, I've had various kinds of reforms or various kinds of bankruptcy uh, reforms which actually help at least address zombie lending to some extent uh, but this is a problem which has plagued us over, uh, you know on and on and sometimes our own regulation ends up creating or exacerbating the zombie lending problem um, you know i can go into this stuff further but uh, let me hand it back to you so as a matter of fact, our next question was that itself, like how zombie lending, uh, according to you, has changed post the insolvency and bankruptcy reforms of 2016. 
Okay, so uh, okay, so that's that's nice because I uh, we do we did look at this uh, the zombie lending problem and whether the um, insolvency and bankruptcy uh, court was able to uh, sort of address zombie lending, and we find that uh, yes, to some extent there was because it was easier for uh, uh, the creditors to sort of take the uh, borrowers to court. They could now. Um, they, they were now willing to recognize bad loans as bad loans and then start bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, but despite, despite you know, despite the fact that the IBC or the insolvency and bankruptcy was, um, it, it addressed many of the pre-existing problems in our uh, you know uh, bankruptcy courts. It had actually a very small, and uh, we find that uh, the effects were particularly. In uh, state-owned banks and uh, in banks that were weakly capitalized, and in fact, uh, we found that uh, the subsequent and you know RBI realized this that uh, despite the IBC being put in place, uh, uh, banks were not taking uh, their borrowers, especially the large borrowers, to court. Um, and I think the reason was that uh, they worried that you know they would have to take an immediate hit on their. Uh, um, on the bank balance sheets, provision uh, for the for these uh, bad loans, and so zombie lending actually continued. And uh, so RBI realizes, and they put out this uh, what what is called as the Feb 12 circular, where uh, RBI basically forced the banks uh, to declare loans as common, even if the was defaulted by even one day. And so that meant that this discretion that lenders had to uh, on whether they would or would not recognize the loan as non-performing that was taken away from them. Um, and so we saw that that did have an effect. That is, it did increase zombie recognition. Um, that is, recognizing these bad loans as non-performing. But uh, this is only true for the weakly capitalized banks. For the state-owned banks, it continued to be a problem. And uh, perhaps they knew something uh, because you know eventually the February circular was uh, it was extended, so um, or it was declared unconstitutional. So um, so you, I think the main takeaway is that we need good creditor rights, we need good bankruptcy laws, but we also need the, perhaps you might also need very strong regulation, especially in countries like India, where uh, just these bankruptcy laws might not uh, work in curtailing zombie lending. So the last question for you here today is that the global uh, the global rating agency S and P recently published a report saying that India's banking system would be among the last to recover by around 2023, while China, Singapore, and Saudi Arabia system would recover much faster. So why is that? And according to you, what could India be doing better? So you know, and the thing that I've uh, I've seen in my in my own work is that. Uh, the problems with our banking system, you know, actually date far back. In fact, they were present even during the 2008 crisis and maybe even a little bit before. So when we think about you know, the forbearance schemes that I keep talking about, when we think about why they were put in place, one reason which is often cited is that you know, the world itself, we were seeing a big global financial crisis and uh, regulators were worried that they would hit our uh, uh, a firm's balance sheets, and they just wanted to help these firms. But when you actually uh, think about how badly the firms were affected, our firms were actually pretty resilient. They were they were not directly exposed to the same kind of forces that uh, were affecting these uh, global firms. 
And uh, one of the reasons that uh, people sort of cite is maybe it was meant to help um, the infrastructure projects, which are also going bad around that time. And we already had some forbearance schemes for these infrastructure projects. We put in place more forbearance schemes. And as I said, um, you know, the world over, we have seen uh, you know, different kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, episodes where forbearance schemes have been implemented that uh, they don't, they end up causing more harm than good. And what ends up happening, what ended up happening was that uh, we, um, the banks had an incentive to sort of keep lending to unviable forms. We, the forbearance schemes and regulation itself made the crisis worse. And then we entered uh, into 2012-2013 with, uh, with, you know, with very stressed val uh, bank balance sheets. And I think the more worrying factor was that we didn't know how bad we get our banks were. Um, and then RBI put in a regulation, which is called the Asset Quality Review, which cleaned up bank balance sheets where banks were forced to recognize what, what were their bad loans. Um, and this process was a bit, uh, we first had to recognize these loans, we then had to start resolving these loans. And then, you know, once this cleanup was done, we could then come in and say, okay, let's now recapitalize our banks so that now the banks can lend to their healthier forms. Now, as this process was taking place, and I think we had not yet completely finished uh, recognizing the bad loans on uh, our books, on the bank's books, uh, we were hit with another crisis, which is the INFS crisis. And then we had the same problem, that is the real estate structure, the uh, real estate sector, the infrastructure sector, um, and the NDFCs, that is the non-banking financial companies, which were exposed to these sectors, uh, now were hit with uh, these bad loans. And so uh, there was this call even before the COVID pandemic that we needed to sort of have a similar asset quality review in the NBFC sector so that we could again recognize, you know, what was what was the status of uh, how bad uh, badly hit with our NBFC sector and maybe even some of the banks which were exposed to these NBFC sectors. Um, and then we entered into the current crisis. So again, we are in the same sort of dilemma we were in before. That is, we do not know how bad, bad, uh, how badly hit our banks were even before entering into the system. And now all these schemes, all the forbearance schemes, the moratorium schemes, etc., sort of hide the true quality of our assets. And if you think about it, that is one is that the bank balance sheets maybe are uh, bad. Second is maybe. Um, it creates a lot of uncertainty in the economy. And so even in the private sector, which might want to invest, might not do so because they are worried that they might not get credit now or maybe in the future. So, um, and that I think is the main reason why we we might see a very long period of, uh, you know, to, uh, we might take a long time to recover from this crisis. And the answer basically lies in our banking system. So uh, thank you for all those informative answers, ma'am. So uh, now we have a surprise fun segment for you that our editor Dhanisha will take you through. Um, hope you enjoy it. Um, over to you, Dhanisha. Thanks, Arneet. Okay, so um, for this segment, ma'am, what we'd like to be doing is a little similar to a rapid fire round where we would be, I would be listing out certain themes, concepts, ideas, and or current affairs. And I would like for you to give your opinion on the same in one sentence. So whatever comes to your mind on that particular topic, summarized in one sentence. Can we begin? Yeah, sure. Okay. So first off, universal basic income. Uh, necessary. I think it's very necessary. 
carbon tax? Um, also necessary. Yeah. I, yeah. I think this, this, that is the big uh, sort of question of our times. So that is where we should be sort of focusing our climate change. That is where we should be focusing our attention. Absolutely. National Education Policy 2020. Uh, well, it's a game changer. We'll see how it works out. Sure. Farm bills. Um, I think necessary, uh, but you know there are. I, I think it needs to play its course out, and let's see, you know, how how it works out. Cryptocurrency usage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite book. Um, Franny and Zoe. Oh, your favorite economist. Um, I think Raghuram Rajan. And uh, last, who inspired you? Who inspired you? Uh, I think um, uh, that, that's a tough question, you know. Uh, I, I think the good work from good economists, at least in my day-to-day -day job, uh, good work from good economists inspires me. That's all we have for this segment. Thank you so much. Okay, great. that was fun. Yeah, ma'am, I think that's all we have for today uh, for you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, we were uh, hoping you could uh, give one piece of advice to the budding economists who are listening to this podcast. You know, I think uh, when I was, when, when I uh, sort of came into the field, when I started uh, in my field, which is research, and now maybe I'm a little bit more policy adjacent, not really in policy making, but policy adjacent. Uh, I was going through the global uh, financial crisis. So I entered uh, my MBA in 2007, and uh, that was a sort of peak of the crisis. And those were very interesting times. And especially for people who want to get into research, I think these are you know these are terrible times, but these are also very interesting times. So keep your you know ears and eyes open and. Uh, just sort of uh, be clued in, um, uh, be clued in as to where you think what is going wrong with the economy, what you think is being hit, who are the people who suffer the most, and that, that I think sort of um, inspires you to do better work and you also sort of you sort of figure out where you want to focus your energies, especially as far as research is concerned. Thank you, ma'am. That sounds like some really wonderful advice. We had a lot of fun during our conversation and we hope that you did too. And we're looking forward to future engagements with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot too, and especially your rapid fire segment. Thanks. 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 Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Can You See It? We hope you enjoyed listening to us. Our next podcast guest will be Dr. Ajay Shah. Stay tuned.